For those that are joining us for the first time this morning or visiting again, we are moving through Paul's letter to the Ephesian church. We've explored over the course of 23 weeks God's faithfulness in giving us a right relationship with himself through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. We've seen the lavish mercy and grace of Christ Jesus. We've understood how we can have that restored relationship horizontally, vertically, with God the Father. And then we've been tackling over recent weeks that horizontal relationship and how we ought to live in a way that pleases God in our relationships with one another. For those who have been here and regularly attending, some of you know where we'll be landing this morning. We'll be in the first four verses of Ephesians 6. There are some parents who are enthusiastically elbowing their kids, pay attention this morning. Perhaps throughout the week, there has been a sense of anticipation. We're going to get to the children obey your parents part, right? But children, don't fret. Your parents aren't getting off that easily this morning. In fact, none of us will. The theme that we'll revisit as we explore what God has for us is that we are called to obedient submission to Christ Jesus. Christ is our head as Christ himself submitted to God. We're called as a response to the gospel to demonstrate this submission. So there'll be something for everyone this morning. Ephesians begins with this letter being directed to all of the saints. So whoever you're seated next to, rest assured, God in his grace has something for each of us this morning. Let's revisit the context of the uh, section that we've been looking at together in Ephesians. I'd invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5. We're going to reread from verse 22 through verse 9 of chapter 6. So we see the whole context of this gospel call for submission. I'd also invite you, now that you've found it, to stand yet again out of reverence for God's holy word. Beginning at verse 15 of Ephesians chapter 5. I'm sorry, verse 22, Ephesians chapter 5. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he may sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, 
Do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ. Not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bond servant or is free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no partiality with him. This ends the reading of God's word. Please remain standing as we pray. Father God, we thank you for your holy, inerrant, and eternal word. We pray this morning that through the power of your Holy Spirit, it would minister to us. It would remind us of our needfulness of you and offer us the opportunity for repentance and turning to you. We ask these things in the power of your Holy Spirit and in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. Verse 1 of Ephesians chapter 6 is pretty simple, right? Children, obey your parents in the Lord. Pretty simple. If we rewind that and look at it in the original Greek, it says, children, obey your parents in the Lord. We could also read it in NASB, and it says, children, obey your parents in the Lord. Right? This isn't complicated, but what's really remarkable about all of how Scripture communicates with us is that it doesn't tell us things that are complicated. It tells us things that are costly. It doesn't give us the instructions for what comes easily to us, but rather calls us to what we need the gospel to effectively live out. Scripture is full of things that we bristle at, things that go against our nature. From birth, we want to be on God's throne. From birth, we want to reverse the order of things that God has prescribed for us. Calvin, in his commentary on this text, says, We know that a man's mind is so full and laden with pride that there is no man or child who would not want to be Lord. As for subjection, it so irks men to yield to it until our Lord has brought us into line by his Holy Spirit. You see, there's, there's nothing about our nature that wants to submit, not to God, not to Christ's headship, women, not to husbands, children, not to parents. And so for that reason, it's needful for us to see the gospel anew in this text together today. The concept of, of children obey your parents is so unnatural that in our society today, we can actually see that quite reversed. What we see is parents obey your children. We see that in how a, a child might behave while out at the, at the store. We can see children demanding that something be purchased for them, something to be given to them. And there's a desire that they call the shots. And our society has taken this so far that we have empowered young people to defy their parents. A father gives his son a name. And the son says, you know, I identify differently than that. I'd really like a different name. And our society has gone so far that a medical practitioner can usher parents out of the room so that they can have a conversation with a child about the child's desires to live contrary to scripture. 
This is reversed. Scripture is clear. Children, obey your parents in everything. Now, as Paul writes to the Ephesian church, culture in that day, well, just as today, the corrupt, opposed to God, the words children obey your parents would have had a particular meaning to the young people in that church. Now, keep in mind, this is a letter, right? Paul sends it, the beloved Tychicus, the faithful minister and the, the brother, delivers the letter and is read to the entire church. Children are present, parents are present, the young are present, the old are present, it's the body. And in fact, Tychicus delivers a similar letter to the church at Colossae, and you know what he says the same thing there? Children, obey your parents. This is something that would have had meaning to all of those who are listeners. But it's important for us to understand that in Roman society, children obey your parents would have been motivated by a completely different set of motivations than we understand in a Christian family. The motivation to obey parents, to obey fathers specifically, would have been done by fear. Reading James Boyce, he pointed to the idea of a Roman law called pater potestas. That means the father has the power. The father calls the shots. This was part of Roman society, and a Roman father had a great deal of domineering power over his entire family. So much so that the child, when born, if there was any abnormalities or birth defects, the child had full rights, the father had full rights to kill that child. Cruel, barbaric, pagan. A father's primary interest in having offspring was to carry on his name. The motivation of a father in the Roman times wasn't necessarily to, to raise the child to grow up to be successful, but rather for the child to grow up and carry on his name. In fact, this was so prevalent that I learned that a child wasn't accepted by his or her father until they went through a day of purification. On the eighth day for young babies, girls, and on the ninth day for baby boys, the father would take the child who is yet unnamed, okay? So the first weeks of the child's life without a name, and the father would hold up the child, and if he approved of the child, he would give it a name. If not, it would be cast aside, abandoned, and left for adoption. A father was interested in carrying on his name. You might think of the emperor, the Caesar. He's got a, a baby, and on the ninth day, they hand him little Caesar. And he holds it up, and he says, we'll call this one Julius, right? There's this idea of, of naming and carrying on the name. Nothing that belonged to the father would be the son's in inheritance until after the father died. When a young man or a young woman would come of age, everything that they earned would become their father's estate. So for a Roman child to hear children obey your parents, there were very real implications to what that meant. Father had complete power to punish his children as he wanted. And in fact, if the child wasn't approved, he would be cast aside and left for another to come along and perhaps adopt. That's what the, the church in Ephesus would have understood when they hear, children, obey your parents. But see, as Paul presents this, he presents it in a totally different way. The children obey your parents isn't one motivated by fear, but rather by love, by gospel love. If you would, turn with me in your Bibles to Galatians. 
We see this beautifully in Galatians chapter 4. I don't have this on a slide for you. It's a couple of verses, so it's worth following along in. And you can see as you read this how Paul points to this Roman law of pater potestas. You can see how it's in the culture as Paul writes. Chapter 4, beginning at verse 1, Paul explains, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave. Right? Picture that. Children, obey your parents. This is the idea that a child is under the complete dominion and almost enslavement of a father. And Paul goes on to say, though this child is the owner of everything, he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. You see, in two different occasions, Paul calls to mind this idea of Abba, Father. For a young person sitting in the congregation at the Ephesian church, the idea of father was frightening, was not warm, was not caring. And so for that reason, Paul lays out the spirit that we've been given as adopted sons of God are those that say, Daddy God, Abba, Father, warm and caring. And so it's in that vein that Paul wants to explain to us this concept of children, obey your parents. And he goes on to say, children, obey your parents, for this is right. The parallel passage in Colossians, Paul says, obey your parents, for this pleases the Lord. So as we come into the new covenant, as we come into this time after Christ has lived out for us the gospel, we're able to see the term father as one of affection, as one of warmth, as one that our our status as children of God is because he has willfully adopted us. He has held us up, and he, in Christ, has given us a new name and status, not as slaves, but as heirs. Because of that, family units ought to operate in light of the gospel. Children should obey their parents, not out of fear, but because it pleases the Lord. And to understand this a bit better, we need to look at the words of Christ himself. If you would flip to John chapter 14, we understand a little bit about why it is that Paul instructs us to live with obedience. In verse 15 of John chapter 14, Jesus says to his disciples in simple terms, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. You see how simple that is? Gospel obedience is a response in love. When we're given instructions from God, our response is to obey because we love him. Likewise, that passage in Galatians explains to us that we can call him father because he loved us first. The contrast to that, of course, comes later on in the same passage in John chapter 14, verse 24. Jesus says, whoever does not love me does not keep my words. 
And the word that you hear is not, is not mine, but it's the Father's who sent me. So obedience to Christ is out of a response to love. Not obeying Christ is a response to not knowing him and not loving him. It is because of this, children, that we understand the heart of the gospel. We, by our nature, are born wanting to be the boss. We want to tell our parents how to do things. We want to tell God how to do things. We want to move God off his throne. We've seen that from Adam and Eve. But Jesus came to give us hope and an ability to live out this love and obedience. You see, as we look again at John 14, the very next verse after Jesus says, if you love me and keep my commandments, verse 16 says, and I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you. Even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. And then verse 18 says, and I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to see you. I will come to you. Isn't this incredible? This is the heart of what Christ came to do. He came to deliver his father's message. And the message was, all of the law, all of the instructions, obey that if you love me. And I can make it possible for you to love me. And how does he do that? He does, he does that as we turn to him in repentance. Ask him for forgiveness. And then, like we've seen the last few weeks in the book of Ephesians, he indwells us with his Holy Spirit. He doesn't leave us alone to do the impossible task of, of obeying or submitting. He gives us his Holy Spirit. And just like we observed last week, this passage that we read together in opening, as we look at submission, is bookended by the power and the reality of the Holy Spirit. He indwells us, he fills us, he propels us, he permeates us. And then as we're moving towards the full armor of God, that's all about the Holy Spirit enabling us to live out gospel obedience. Christ explains, obedience is to be motivated by love for him and love for our parents, not by fear. As we move towards verse two of Ephesians chapter six, the next verse helps us understand the first. These two kind of go together. The whole thing goes together. That's the way God's word works. It's all woven together in such a way that we can understand the big picture. So Paul begins, children, obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right. And then he says, honor your father and mother. Now this idea of honoring has a lot to do with the in your inward posture of our hearts. We can do a lot of things that look like outward obedience that really kind of stink, right? Your parents ask you to do something and you can do it shuffling your feet, slamming the door behind you, muttering under your breath with grumbling hearts. Adults, we can do the same thing when God tells us to do something, can we not? How many of the things that we do that we'd like to have as obedient acts are really filthy rags, are really an offense to God because our heart is not aligned with him in honoring him. Honor your father and mother. A verse that I'd like us to look at together is in Philippians chapter 2. If you could take a look there. Ephesians, or sorry, Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 through 16. This gives us a bit of an idea of what honoring and obeying our parents might look like. Honoring 
means to go through the act of obedience, expressing love, but in a way that is without grumbling, with a sincere and, and loving heart, motivated by love. Paul writes, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and, pr- and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God, without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain." Do you see that? What Paul is going through and laying out there, he starts out talking about obedience. They've received his instruction. He says, hey, you've obeyed, but do all these things in the life of the church without grumbling or complaining. Furthermore, in verse 15 of that same passage, Paul says that you might be blameless and innocent, children without God, the children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. Now, there's one word there that grabbed my attention as I looked at it, and that was a word that I inadvertently kind of skipped over last week in Ephesians, and that's the word blemish. If you could go back to Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25 and on, Paul says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the word, so that he might not so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. What causes blemishing? Well, according to what we see in Ephesians there, grumbling or complaining. Doing things that look like obedience, that in our hearts are not motivated by love. For the the bride of Christ to live in obedience to God, but while dragging their feet, while complaining to one another, that's a blemish. Children, to obey your parents outwardly and inwardly be festering, it's a blemish. We need Christ, that he would present us blameless, without wrinkle and without blemish. So an application, a question for the young people. There are a few here today. What's the, what's the attitude with which you obey your parents? Do you obey them because you're afraid of a consequence? Or do you obey them because you desire to honor them and lovingly respond to what they've asked of you? So far, the kids feel like they're getting picked on, right? Don't worry, parents, your turn is coming. The back half of, of Ephesians 6.2 is really important for us to understand, too, because Paul explains something to the folks who may have been from a Jewish background in the Ephesian church. He says, honor your father and mother, for this is the first command with a promise. Okay? This promise is really important. If we look at the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, there's a common understanding that the first four Commandments are about our relationship with God. Those are the the vertical commandments that describe what our relationship with God is supposed to be like. And then we get to commandment number five, which is honor your father and mother that the days may be long in the land that God is giving you. And that's with the promise. It's with the condition 
that promise comes with a corresponding curse. The curse, which is found in Leviticus 20, verse 9, says, For anyone who curses his father and mother shall surely be put to death. He has cursed his father or mother, and his blood is upon him. Aren't we glad we're under the new covenant? That, that instruction, that curse that goes along with that, would have been heavy in the hearts of those who would have been Paul's readers. Before we go on to, to unpack the, the commandments and the promise in verse 3, I do want to make another application for those of you who are uh, adult children. There are some that have been prayed for even this week as they care for aging parents. As we move into adulthood and we separate from our parents' homes, we're no longer called to obey them in the same way, but the commandment to honor them remains intact. Matthew chapter 15, Jesus has the conversation with the scribes and the Pharisees, and they ask him, hey, you know, shouldn't you guys be washing your hands? We looked at this a few months back together. Shouldn't we be, shouldn't you wash your hands before you eat? Like your hands are unclean. And Jesus rebukes them. And he says, you know, you guys are concerned with commandments of men, but what about the commandment of God, honor your father and mother? You guys are taking your, your money that should be used to provide for your aging parents, and you're saying, no, no, that's God's. That's a tithe, and you cast aside your parents. And Jesus rebukes them and calls them hypocrites. So for those of us with parents in that, in that category, we need to understand that we're still called to honor them, make sure that they're cared for, we share our resources with them. And in our society, we might not have parents that need of us financially. We might not need to take them in, but you know what? We have another resource that we're also called, called to share with them. And that's our time. Some of you might remember the song, The Cat's in the Cradle, right? You see the phone call from your parent, and you're like, oh, I'm going to have to hear this story for the 17th time, right? But what a, what a privilege to be able to honor our parents. So, Keep that in mind as we honor our moms and dads. Returning to the text, Ephesians chapter 6, moving towards verse 3, Paul recaps what this promise was from the law. He says, here's the promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Now, that's a condition. Brother Chris read us through Deuteronomy chapter 11, so we should be pretty clear on what the promise is, right? The promise is, if we faithfully teach God's commands, if the people of, of Israel would have continued to teach faithfully from one generation to the next, they would have been given the opportunity to live long in the land, long life. Proverbs chapter 4, verse 10 says, Hear, my son, and accept my words, that the years of your life may be many. Good practical wisdom right? One of my boys, I won't name which one, commented when, when we were teaching them, he said, I, I want to live for a long time, so I'm going to obey, right? And there's some good practical insight in that. There's instructions that parents give to their children that are meant to be life extending, right? Little things like don't run with scissors. Those are good advice. Wait till the crosswalk changes before you cross the street. These are things that are meant to protect. As kids get older, the, the stakes get higher, Make good choices about the company that you keep. Don't, don't get into a vehicle with other people who are abusing substances. Use your head that you may live long. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 2 says similarly, 
that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son, by keeping all of his statutes and his commandments, which I command you all the days of your life, that all your days may be long. Now, we need to understand this is a, a generality, right? Not everything in Scripture is applicable 100% of the time, so that if I obey, I'm guaranteed I'm going to live to 100. That's not what this means. It's a general precept that children should understand. My parents are giving me instruction so that they can protect me, so that they can preserve me. The preacher in Ecclesiastes makes an observation. He says, this doesn't actually seem all of that true. Ephesians or sorry, Ecclesiastes 8, verses 12 and 13, says, Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God, because they fear before him. But it will not be well with the wicked, neither will he prolong his days like a shadow, because he does not fear before God. The writer there is saying, it seems like the evil get away with it, right? Remember the song, Only the Good Die Young, right? He's making the observation, this concept this doesn't seem perfectly true. But we need to understand that in general senses, a parent is giving instructions to protect and preserve the length of days for his or her child. As we come to the, the land portion of the promise, we need to look at context there too. The promise is that you might live long in the land. Keep in mind what an incredible statement this would have been to the people who received this back in Deuteronomy. You see, they were wandering around the desert their idea of land was, well, mom and dad pitched their tent here this week. We're going to wander through the desert with very little food. It's going to be hot. It's going to be arid. We're going to be in this patch of sand over here next week, right? The, the, the idea of inheriting land was so far off, they couldn't understand it. And when they finally did get into the promised land and they begin to understand what this land was going to be like, they're like, there are some pretty big people living here. There's some giants in this land. How are we ever going to cross over and take this land? They didn't understand the promise. And as the tragic story goes, they did move into the land, and then they forgot about all the instructions that they were supposed to obey and to love God and to keep his commandments, and they lost that privilege. So as we, we look at this verse and we understand Honor your father and mother. This is the first command with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. The hearts of God's people don't believe that. And, and furthermore, we fall short of obeying the command. Therefore, we don't see the promise. And this is why Christ came. Christ came because we are lawbreakers. We can be given commandments, 10 of them, and we can't do it. So, so that promise is replaced. Instead of the blessing, we get the curse. If adherence to the promise there gives us long life, what does scripture tell us? The wages of sin is death. Thank you. We're listening to instruction in the home. Love that. Death. And, and then we know that the people of Israel lost their, their land privilege because of that. And that's why Christ had to come to help us understand that he alone honored his father. In obedience to his father, laid down his life so that the righteous blessings, the benefits would come to us. So what's long life mean for us on this side of the cross? Well, John 3, 
verse 36, explains it really well. We are not promised long life. We're promised eternal life. Isn't that incredible? That's what the promise is through Christ Jesus. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Through belief in his Son, all of those precious promises from having obeyed that commandment are imparted to us eternal life. Now, the new covenant explanation of of the land promise is a little bit harder for us to wrap our heads around. Just like the people in Israel didn't get it as they are wandering around the desert, we don't really understand this land promise either. What does this mean? There are some who would interpret scripture to say that there's going to be a a reestablishment, a re-giving of the land and But that's not what we understand from Scripture. We're not talking about Israel, the land there that's bordered by the Red Sea, the Dead Sea, and the Med Sea. We're talking about land that is all of new creation. You see, just as redemptive history began in the garden, unaffected by sin, unaffected by death, in complete communion with God, the Father, that's what the new covenant believers promised yet again. Not just a piece of land that's promised, but the whole land, all of creation, would be renewed. That's what awaits us. Let's look at that together and and celebrate and understand what it is that Christ has accomplished for us. Romans chapter 8. We'll begin at verse 12. Again, as we move through this, we'll see the theme of inheritance, which is promised to, to children, We see the theme of adoption, and we see all of land, all of creation made new. Romans chapter 8, starting at 12. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that creation itself would be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly, as we, eagerly, as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. You see, that's the hope of gospel promise. That's the hope of long life, right? Eternal life and all of creation that will be renewed through the power of Jesus Christ. No sin, no grief, no sadness, all of creation under his holy and perfect control forever that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. 
as we move into the fourth verse of this short passage, we see fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. See, I told you kids, parents get a turn. It's noteworthy here that the message is directed first to fathers. Now, it applies to mothers as well, but fathers carry the the authority, as we've seen in the texts weeks prior to this, for the leadership of the home. The father is called to be the priest of the home. In today's society, that's been in many ways usurped. But church, fathers are called to be the spiritual leaders. Fathers are called to provide the instruction to their children. I want to do a quick exercise with you to understand how it is that fathers are supposed to provide instructions for their children. If you would, the young people that have Bibles with them this morning, which hopefully is everyone, right? If not, fathers, buy your kids a Bible. Make sure they bring it to church. Turn to Proverbs chapter 1. It's beautiful to hear pages turning. We're going to turn a few pages, all right, kids? So follow along here. So Proverbs chapter 1, verse 8 says, Hear, my son, your father's instruction, and forsake not your mother's teaching. For they are a graceful garland for your head and penance for your neck. My son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. You see that? The book of Proverbs begins with the message, Son, Listen to the instructions of your father. Listen to the instructions of your mother and don't forsake that. If somebody comes along trying to tell you, you don't need to obey your parents, you can fall into sin, the word of God is clear. Skip ahead to verse one of chapter two. My son, if you receive my words and treasure up my commandments with you, making your heart attentive to wisdom and inclining your heart to understanding, Yes, if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, if you seek it like silver and search for it as hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the treasure of God. We're going to turn the page again, ready? Chapter 3, verse 1 of Proverbs. My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. For the length of days and the years of life and peace, they will add to you. These are the the promises of Scripture. We're only at chapter 3, but wait, there's more. Turn the page again. Proverbs chapter 4, verse 1. Hear, O sons, a father's instruction, and be attentive that you may gain insight. For I will give you good precepts, and do not forsake my teaching. And you'll continue to go on, and if you flip through and you look at chapter 5 and you look at chapter 6, they all begin with a message of a father to his son. Listen to this instruction. Listen to this instruction. Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 5 says, Keep then in your heart as a man disciplines his son, for the Lord God disciplines you. I had a research assistant helping me a little bit with some study this week, for which I am grateful. And, and uh, my brother shared with me a particular quote that helps us rightly understand the message of a father to a son of a father to his daughter. R.C. Sproul, with regards to John chapter 16, says this, when Jesus speaks of the father, he is not using a metaphor. 
Father is not an anthropomorphism, a way of speaking about God in human terms. In fact, it is we who are using metaphorical language when we use the Father to speak about our human fathers. Our fatherhood is not the model for God the Father. The reverse is the case. His fatherhood is the model for ours. He is the original, and we are the copy. Isn't that incredible? As we move through Scripture, we so often press it backwards. Just like we, we put ourselves on the throne instead of God, we think that he's the copy of us. No, we bear his image. He is the Father. That means that earthly fathers are a copy that fall short. So kids, if you haven't learned it yet, your parents are sinners too. That means that there will be times where their discipline isn't just, isn't the same as God's. And so we, in turn, are gracious with our parents as they are with us. The role of father needs to be clear to us. He has adopted us and allowed us to call him Abba Father. He has given us the original pattern for him being our loving father. And we obey him out of love. But as for earthly fathers, Paul gives this instruction. In chapter 4, or in verse 4 of Ephesians, chapter 6, he says, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. He's giving specific instructions on how they're to be raised up. Curiously, I think I have a second translation on here this morning that helps us understand the idea of bring up. The idea of bring up from this translation, which was used in a Spurgeon commentary, says, and fathers, do not be provoking your children to anger, but be nourishing them in the training and admonition of the Lord, bringing them up, providing them with nourishment so that they grow. We'll talk more about about how we do that in just a second, but I want to make an observation from the life of Christ. The remarkable thing about how God chose to unfold the mystery of the gospel is that he would come in human form. He would be born to a virgin, born to Mary, and then raised under the tutelage of Joseph as an earthly father and Mary as an earthly mother. They had the charge to bring up, to nourish Jesus. That's just mind-blowing, right? The God-man comes in human form, sinless, but still needing to be brought up, still needing to be raised. If we look at Luke chapter 2, Verse 51 makes an interesting observation as it describes the, the boy Christ growing. And it says, And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. Isn't that incredible? The God man submitting to his mother. Of course, his mother's response is, is one moms can understand. What mother, what doesn't treasure the fact that their child is growing in submission, is growing in a way that, that demonstrates loving obedience? But then Luke says in verse 52, and Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and men. For those of you who are note takers, one commentary helped break this down just a little bit. There's four different ways that bringing up takes shape. 
in the life of Christ. It says that he grew in wisdom. So one is bringing our children up in wisdom, intellectually, right? Second is in stature. It says Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature. That's talking about physically. I can remember my grandma would put books on my head and say, I don't want you to get any taller. I don't want you to get any bigger, right? Children are just going to grow whether you want them to or not, right? But a parent has a role in that. We feed and nourish our children so that they grow in stature. And then the, the last part of that verse says, they, they grew in, Jesus grew in stature and in favor with God and with men. And if we look at that, there's the aspect of bringing up a child so that he would grow in the favor of men. That means socially. We want our kids to be socially adapted, right? Able to interact with one another. And then it says, in favor with God. I'd say Mary had a bit of an unfair advantage in that, in that she was raising the God-man sinless. The rest of you have a little bit harder job. We have to raise sinners. Tripp, Ted Tripp, writes with regards to the, the call of parents in his classic book, Shepherding a Child's Heart. Before I read this quote, I want to do a quick commercial. We are blessed as a, as a church that in the month of February, this brother Ted Tripp will be coming to share at our church. We've invited some other area churches to come and, and delve into the topic of marriage. Ted Tripp's ministerial career has focused on helping parents and helping couples. So this particular quote comes from his book, Not on Marriage, but on Parenting. If you don't own a copy, you should. It's an incredible book for, for parents. And Ted Tripp explains the role of helping a young person grow with the favor of God. He says this, The central focus of child rearing is to bring children to a sober assessment of themselves as sinners. They must understand the mercy of God who offered Christ as a sacrifice for sinners. How is that accomplished? You must address the heart as the fountain of behavior and the conscience as the God-given judge of right and wrong. The cross of Christ must be the central focus of your child rearing. That's the focus of parenting, church. Your desire isn't to have merely obedient children. It's to have children who understand the centrality of the cross in their life. So how do we do that? Well, the, the verse tells us that parents are supposed to do it by bringing up their children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. The discipline word, Chris, that helped us define is like pedagogy, instruction. We know this one well. The verse would come to mind from 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and training in righteousness. Pedagogy. That's what a parent is to do, is to lead their child consistently through scripture, training them up. Deuteronomy 6-7 tells us the frequency with which we're supposed to do instruction. Is instruction designed for Sunday mornings? Is instruction just reserved for a, a tough conversation? No, it's continual. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and you shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk on the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. For those of you who don't walk in the way very much, especially when it's hot, when you're in the car with your kids, talk to them about Scripture. Instruct them in this way. The second word in that verse is bringing them up in dis discipline and instruction. And the instruction word comes across a lot more as the word warning. 
we find that, that Greek word in a couple of different places that pertain to warning. Curiously, one of them is 1 Corinthians 10, where we hear God saying, all of instruction is to give you the warning of how the people of Israel complained in the desert. Warning, don't do that. Here's an example, don't do this, right? He, he instructed them over a course of a series of verses, don't grumble, don't complain. There's warning. As we understand teaching our, our children, giving divine instruction from God's word and warning and correcting are the essence of what a parent's called to do. A little booklet that was shared with me by Charles Spurgeon on teaching children said, don't forget as we're teaching them the three R's, reading, writing, and arithmetic, right? To teach the other three R's, which Spurgeon says are ruin, regeneration, and redemption. Our instruction needs to point to the reality of the fact that they're fallen creatures in a fallen world, but that through Christ there is regeneration and there's redemption. Understanding that instruction and discipline are meant to be preventative measures, we also know that as parents, sometimes our children will, will buck up against that. And for that reason, Scripture provides us clear guidance on the rod and reproof. I want to talk about these real, real briefly. The rod. Okay? Scripture talks about spanking. For those of you curious about what the state of California says, doesn't matter. The Bible says spank. Okay? There's certain guidelines of, of how we should do this. We should do this in love. We should not do this in anger. We should not do this in a way that inflicts physical marks. Right? This is to be done lovingly for the purposes of correcting. For age appropriateness, there's lots of experts, lots of guidance, but in general, when a child is old enough to understand scripture, understand doctrinal correction, you're probably past the spanking. This is for, generally speaking, for small children. I just wanna share with you a couple of verses that scripture talks about with regards to spanking. All of these four are found in the book of Proverbs. Proverbs 13, 24 says, Whoever spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. Just like we read in Hebrews chapter 12 today, discipline is a sign of love. Parents are called to do that. Verse 22, 15 says, Folly is bound up in the heart of the child, but the rod of discipline drives it far from him. It's meant to, to move our children away from that folly that is in their hearts from birth. Proverbs 23, 13 through 14 said, Do not withhold discipline from a child. If you strike him with a rod, he will not die. If you strike him with a rod, you will save his soul from Sheol. You see, that's the method, that's the reason for that spanking, right? It's to save them from eternal separation to God. It's to drive them towards loving obedience of the Lord Jesus Christ. And finally, on the rod topic, not to go too far into this, Proverbs 29, 15 says, The rod and reproof give wisdom, but the child left to himself brings shame to his mother. Right? We, that tells us what an unspanked child makes his mother feel like. Scripture is very clear on these things. But the other thing I want to really help us understand this morning as we, we round out this text is that parents are called to give discipline and instruction. When a child misses the mark, which they inevitably do, it's built in, Scripture gives us clear guidance 
on the reproof part. Reproof is different from instruction in that it's reactive, right? The instruction is to prevent a pattern of sin, and reproof is to bring a child back on course. What's the desired response to reproof? Well, it's to bring about repentance. It's to bring about life-giving reproof. How do we do reproof? Some practical guidelines for those of you with young people still under your roof. The first thing, according to Lou Priolo, he gives a long list. I'm only going to give you four of these on how we use scripture to reprove. The first thing is we use scripture to first examine our own motives. Why are we disciplining the child? And this goes back to the verse four itself. It says, children, fathers, don't provoke your children to anger. The discipline of a parent should, be, should not be because they're angered or because they're annoyed or because it's intruding on their life. Tripp again says, if correction orbits around parents who have been offended, then the focus will be venting anger or perhaps vengeance. The function is punitive. If, however, correction orbits around God as the one offended, then the focus is restoration. The function is remedial. It is designed to move a child who has disobeyed God back onto the path of obedience. It's corrective. So, so parents, when your children are, are doing something, evaluate whether or not your response to them is one of anger because you're annoyed, because it's intruding on you, or if your true desire is to move them back onto the path of obedience to God. That's a tough thing, right? Scripture reproves the parents first. Praise God for that. Second practical step that I'll tell you with biblical reproof is to use biblical terminology, right? The world around us doesn't use biblical terminology. You don't say, Johnny, you made a mistake. Say, Johnny, you sinned. You don't say, Susie, you fibbed. Susie, you lied. Like, let's use biblical terminology to define what it is we're trying to address. The Bible is clear on these things. If somebody is... Uh, not a, a, a listening to an instruction, what does the Bible call that? Disobedience. If there's a, a, a task that's assigned and you see a slowness to respond to that, what's that called? Laziness, right? Use biblical terminology. Then we can identify things properly from God's perspective. That's really key. Another thing is the timeliness of a punishment. There's kind of the old adage, wait till your father gets home from work. Mothers, God's word actually tells us that we need to give instruction in a timely fashion because our kids, just like us, forget, right? We want the, the discipline to be correlated with what's happened in such a way that they can understand and correct course quickly. Biblically speaking, I can defend that with Ecclesiastes 8.11 that says, because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. Respond quickly. And then the most important one, the one I want to end with in this list of four things, is that biblical reproof is intended to bring about restoration. All of the gospel is intended to bring about restoration. Galatians chapter 6, verse 1, talks about restoration for all of the body of Christ, not just between parents and children, but for all of us. And it says with clarity, Brothers, if anyone is caught in transgression... You who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. 
I've meditated on this verse a lot this week, and it's precious, and it talks about restoration. And the word that's used there is like a broken bone. A broken bone has to be twisted and set back into place. If anyone's experienced that, it's exceptionally painful, but the idea is that it heals straight. It's restored. And that verse ends with the admonishment, and keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. So let those moments of, of restoration, of, of biblical reproof between a parent and a child be filled with that same gentleness that's meant to, to set straight what's crooked for them. Coupled with the reminder that parents, you're sinners too. We're all in need of this gospel grace. I want to end with Luke chapter 24. Just a reminder to all of us, children, parents, brothers, sisters, those who are contemplating all it is that we talk about here at church with regards to the gospel. In Luke's account, we all know it well, Jesus embodies what Deuteronomy 6 and Deuteronomy 11 tell us to do. Right? He's walking along the way with his disciples. And while he's walking along the way, what's he talking about? Scripture. He's telling them what his word has to say. In verse 44, after the disciples have had their eyes open to who Christ is, Christ gives a, a recap. It says, then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke while I was still with you that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer on the third day and rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed to all nations, in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You see, the purpose of all that scripture had declared the purpose of all that Christ had come to accomplish can be summarized in such a simple way. And that repentance and the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed. Parents, that's your charter. It's not to keep your children safe from everything in the world. It's not to keep your children feeling protected from all those influences. It's that they would know the repentance and the forgiveness of sins offered through Christ alone. And that's for us as a church too. Gospel clarity. Instruct, correct, reprove, and rejoice that we can call our Father, Abba Father. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your grace to us, shown through your son Jesus. We thank you that all of the promises in scripture have their yes and their amen in you. We understand that we have rights to be called sons. We have the, the rights to call all that is yours ours. We have the rights to an eternal and imperishable inheritance. We thank you, Lord God, that you have also spoken to us with clarity on your commandments. They are not complicated. And you equip us to obey. Lord God, I just pray that you would allow us as families, as a church family, to submit to you and to honor you with our actions, with the posture of our hearts, Lord God. In the name of your son, Jesus, we pray. Amen.